You are listening to the GMO Truth Podcast, straight out of the Walk a Mile Project, brought to you by nonprofit film company Change the World Films. Tune in here to discover the truth and change the world together. Hello and welcome. This is Eric Battersby from Change the World Films here with GMO Truth Podcast number 12. The direct sequel to podcast number 11 we just launched about two weeks ago. If you haven't already done so, please make sure you listen to episode number 11 first, or you will be largely lost listening to this podcast here. Before we dig into last episode's revelations from our two different EPA interviewees, I want to make it clear that we're not closing our glyphosate investigation phase. This just most likely concludes our research into the EPA's 1991 classification of glyphosate as a group E, essentially non-carcinogenic compound. Look, it's not 1991 anymore. We're long past that, and and we clearly understand now that more needed to be done at the time, especially since glyphosate didn't go from ordinary herbicide to GMO powerhouse until after the EPA's work was done. This EPA evaluation was pre-biotech crops, and to that extent, it had one hand tied behind its back from the start. They just didn't know it at the time. It's definitely important to look at what happened, though, because what we saw in the mid-80s and early 90s, and we're still seeing again here in the 2000s, was and is Monsanto all too frequently causing concern. We'll talk about that more with some new revelations near the end of the podcast. Before we start deciphering the EPA conflict we revealed last time, I need to talk a little bit about Penny Fenner-Crisp, one of the former EPA employees who spoke with us on that podcast. Penny has had quite the, let's say, interesting career after her many years at the EPA, all of which I was not aware of at the time we did our interview. It's important to take a look at this, so stay with me, because it raises a couple of red flags on Penny's ability to address the glyphosate approval with impartiality. I'm not judging her, and I'm not saying any of this did definitively have an effect on what she spoke of during our interview. Not at all. I can't can't answer that. And it's not productive for our work here at the GMO Truth to spend a lot of time on this. But it would also be irresponsible of us to not at least dig in a little and put these relevant facts out there. So in 2010... Penny co-wrote an expert panel report for the Alliance for Food and Farming, a report that was essentially a rebuttal to the Environmental Working Group's take on pesticide use for fruits and vegetables. If you tend to eat organic, you've likely seen the Environmental Working Groups, or EWG for short, you've likely seen their pretty popular document called the Dirty Dozen, which is part of their shopper's guide to pesticide and produce. We'll talk about that in a minute, but for now, just know that the Alliance for Food and Farming that Penny wrote for and the Environmental Working Group are essentially bitter enemies on the battleground of conventional versus organic, at least specifically when it comes to pesticide use. Now, the Alliance for Food and Farming is a nonprofit organization in California that's filled largely with members of different farm associations and farm bureaus in that state. But according to their 2011 tax return, right in the middle of its big pushback against the EWG, its number one donor by far was the Produce Marketing Association, or PMA, based in Delaware. The Produce Marketing Association is, and I quote, a trade organization representing companies from every segment of the global fresh produce and floral supply chain. PMA helps members grow by providing connections that expand business opportunities and increase sales and consumption. Here are a few head-spinning highlights of the PMA. Number one, at the bottom of their homepage, they show a sizable list of their annual partners, and that includes companies like Driscoll's, famous for growing both organic and conventional berries, Uh, Taylor Farms, who also grows both organic and conventional products, and uh, also Cal Organic Farms and Earthbound Farms, two famous organic growers. Another one of their partners, however, is Monsanto, 
which likely just means the PMA has a really broad reach, but it was still surprising to see. Number two, the organization proudly touts a $1 million contribution it made in 2007 to the University of California, Davis, to help establish the Center for Produce Safety at that school. UC Davis is one of the biggest pro-GMO universities in America, so number three, as would be very likely from an organization that donates $1 million to UC Davis, the Produce Marketing Association is clearly pro-GMO, as evidenced by their take on GMO labeling from their Chief Science and Technology Officer, Bob Whitaker. I read Bob's take on labeling during my research last year for one of our GMO labeling podcasts. As he put forth his opinion on GMO labeling, he referred to the quote-unquote broad scientific consensus on the safety of foods from genetically engineered crops. And he did so by referencing a report that he also helped write. As you probably know by now, we don't buy into the broad scientific consensus on GMO food safety for humans when there's been zero testing done on humans. From our research, which you'll really understand once you see our next podcast, it's irresponsible to keep pushing the broad scientific consensus line. And we will definitely be getting into that very seriously in the future. So this all puts the PMA into a questionable light, to say the least. And as the biggest donor to the Alliance for Food and Farming during their big push against the Environmental Working Group, that obviously raises questions about the Alliance for Food and Farming as well, which again are the folks who hired Penny to write that report. As always, there's more to the story, however. Now, Penny clearly took the side of the Alliance for Food and Farming, basically going by the premise of, look, eating conventional produce isn't unsafe, and you're damaging consumption rates of fruits and vegetables by publishing documents like the Dirty Dozen. You're scaring some people off of fruits and vegetables. Obviously, anyone can understand a concern over reducing fruit and vegetable consumption, so there is some onus on the environmental working group to back up what they're saying with clear data, and of course to do their best to make sure they're not inadvertently steering people away from fruits and vegetables of any kind, especially since organic is more expensive. Penny and the co-authors of that expert panel report asked the EWG to provide proof of their pesticide data and proof of risk, but as of the latest Dirty Dozen update in 2017, this is what the EWG has to say. The shopper's guide is not built on a complex assessment of pesticide risk, but instead reflects the overall pesticide loads of common fruits and vegetables. This approach best captures the uncertainties about the risks and consequences of pesticide exposure. Since researchers are constantly developing new insights into how pesticides act on living organisms, no one can say the concentrations of pesticides assumed to be safe today are, in fact, harmless. <laughs> it's funny, with what we're seeing here at Wacomile as we dig into GMOs, adopting the precautionary principle looks to be a wise course of action. I feel like we're entering the age of prove the safety, whereas a lot of what's happened over the past several decades is more of the no, you show us that it's unsafe philosophy. So I don't think anyone should be faulted in today's world for being cautious when it comes to our food supply, especially something like this that affects millions of people. However, the EWG also needs to publicly supply the data they looked at. That's what opened the door for Penny's group to question them in the first place, and they're not helping their case by hiding behind a paragraph that vaguely explains their uncomplex assessment. That said, I'm not really comfortable with the Alliance for Food and Farming from an ethical standpoint based on those donations from the PMA and the timing of it all. I don't know exactly what that says about Penny, but it's definitely something to keep in mind, especially with revelation number two here, which is that Penny spent just under four years from 2000 to 2004 as executive director of the Risk Science Institute, which is part of the nonprofit International Life Sciences Institute, or the ILSI for short. You're going to want to remember that, I-L-S-I. And that's because the I-L-S-I is, in a word, 
Notorious. It was created with a lot of help from Coca-Cola, and it's funded by chemical food and drug companies. And the organization's been hit with several scandals over the years, dating all the way back to the 1980s. In fact, a document on the World Health Organization website actually states this directly. Findings indicate that ILSI was used by certain tobacco companies to thwart tobacco control policies. Senior office bearers and ILSI were directly involved in these actions. The time period that statement references is actually 15 years long, from 1983 to 1998. And as always, I've attached a link on the podcast page. As you can imagine, working to undermine tobacco control policies via industry influence would be bad. Pretty much everyone on earth, except for the people actually doing the thwarting there, would consider that bad. Clearly bad. Now, Petty served at the ILSI's Risk Science Institute from 2000 to 2004. So she entered the fray after that period, but less than a year and a half after she left, the World Health Organization effectively banned ILSI from helping to set global safety standards for our food and water supplies, specifically because of the ILSI's funding sources. In other words, chemical, food, and drug companies probably don't belong setting the safety standards for the world's food and water. Basically, if you look up ILSI in a thesaurus, it will probably show the term conflict of interest as the number one synonym. And unfortunately, the more you look, the worse it gets. Here's a report from 2012 created for European Parliament by Corporate Europe, and the report's literally called the International Life Sciences Institute, ILSI, a corporate lobby group. It spends about 12 pages detailing conflict of interest concerns, most of it between ILSI and the European Food Safety Authority, or EFSA for short. I've attached a link to this doc on the podcast page, and I strongly encourage you to read this one because it directly overlaps with the GMO controversy, including one section titled, How ILSI Weakened EFSA's Guidelines for the Risk Assessment of GM Crops. In that section, it even refers to substantial equivalence. Now, honestly, this was another one of those rare reads that put a little chill down my spine like I mentioned earlier. And now we have the ILSI in our crosshairs for our continued research into substantial equivalence. So we inadvertently have Penny to thank for that. <laughs> There's also a section in here titled The Threshold of Toxicological Concern, or TTC for short. Here's an important excerpt from that section. The threshold of toxicological concern approach assumes that for the majority of chemicals, there is a common threshold under which no negative effect can be observed and uses probability mathematical models to calculate threshold instead of actual tests. <laughs> ILSI has been one of the driving forces behind the advancement of the TTC concept. In 1996, ILSI established a task force on the TTC, which has been active until today. A Pesticide Action Network Europe report published in December 2011 has found that numerous experts on EFSA's TTC working group have conflicts of interest within the same industry pushing for the TTC approach, notably with ILSI. No less than 8 out of the 13 members of the working group have official connections to ILSI. It also goes on to mention that the chair of this working group, who had a large say in the selection of its group members, also happens to be a private consultant for ILSI, Pfizer, and PepsiCo. It looks like I could do an entire podcast just on the ILSI. But the last thing I'll mention, which brings it full circle in a way, actually occurred about a year ago, and it speaks specifically to glyphosate. In May of 2016, The Guardian published an article titled UN-WHO Panel in Conflict of Interest Row Over Glyphosate Cancer Risk. Here's how that article starts. 
A UN panel that on Tuesday ruled that glyphosate was probably not carcinogenic to humans has now become embroiled in a bitter row about potential conflicts of interest. It has emerged that an institute co-run by the chairman of the UN's Joint Meeting on Pesticide Residues received a six-figure donation from Monsanto. Of course, the institute they're referring to is the ILSI. To make matters worse, both the chairman of those sessions and the co-chair are ILSI board members. Ugly. So look, where, where this leaves Penny, I'm not sure. I, I wish I'd known all this before we talked because I would have asked her about it. But we did the interview over the phone on the spot, which you could tell from the audio quality. So there wasn't a whole lot of prep going on before we talked. That was saved for when I created the actual podcast itself right here. Penny was one of the first people on the EPA sign-off sheet because she was pretty high up in, in the EPA hierarchy that looked at glyphosate in 1991. So she was a good candidate to talk with us as a second opinion on what Jean Parker had to say. I didn't realize where her post-EPA days led her, where two of her projects could raise serious red flags from an impartiality standpoint, but that's a conversation I will most definitely try to have with Penny myself at some point, and if anything comes out of it, I will certainly follow up on a later podcast. For today, though, look, she was really pleasant to talk with, as you heard on the interview, and you could tell she too was concerned with GMOs. Also, as she even mentioned offline, there's an even more serious concern about the overabundance of chemicals in use that the EPA hasn't even addressed yet. Although, since she and I talked, legislation was passed in an effort to help remedy that. For what we needed to understand, which was simply the other side to Gene Parker's statement, you know, why would the EPA approve the Group E classification for glyphosate back in 1991? Penny certainly addressed the other side, but there may be more here than meets the eye, so that's something we need to keep in mind. There, there were definitely some red flags popping up in, in Penny's post-EPA work, and there's no getting around that. All right, it's time to move forward. Here we go. Let's wrap up glyphosate from a pre-GMO standpoint. For our part, here is the GMO truth on the EPA's 1991 glyphosate approval, and it includes some brand new investigative information that just came to light here in 2017. I do not see how, in good faith, the EPA could have possibly given glyphosate the Class E designation that they did. And here are the three specific reasons why. Number one, that initial mouse study was dismissed mostly over a controversial tumor found in a mouse from the control group, but without any concurrence on that finding. We clearly showed in GMO Truth number seven how that initial mouse study raised concerns, and despite the EPA's request for a repeat study, it was never repeated. The only reason the study went so undervalued in the final assessment the EPA made in 91 was that Monsanto brought in their own experts to defy what the EPA's office was telling them and convince, bully, however you want to look at it, the Office of Pesticide Programs to dismiss it. I want to do a quick summary of that right now because I think it's key to understanding what went on back then. After the initial findings on the mouse study, the EPA suggested a re-review of the kidney slides in question to see if more information could be gathered. Monsanto then commissioned pathologist Dr. Marvin Kushner to review the kidney tissue slides, which we'll come back to in a moment here. Meanwhile, the EPA staff and the staff at Biodynamics, which was the lab that performed the studies in the first place, both found a small localized change in the kidney from one of the control mice. And all parties agreed that the lesion might have had, and I quote, the potential to lead to the development of a frank tumor. Now, it wasn't a tumor, but it might have been developing into one. Obviously, that would have occurred after the study's duration, however, so it never would have been part of the findings for the selected time frame. Everyone at the EPA and Biodynamics agreed that what they saw in the control could have eventually become, but clearly was not, a frank tumor. 
Now let's jump over to the Monsanto side of this equation and look at some new evidence that recently emerged from the lawsuit taking place in San Francisco. I'm going to read you an internal memo that Monsanto sent regarding the work Dr. Kushner was about to perform for them in reviewing those kidney slides. But before I do, let's talk just a second about who sent that memo, Monsanto's very own George Levinskis. If you delved into the PCB mess with us earlier in the GMO Truth, you might have run into George's name on some of the documents. Here's an excerpt from the Guardian's June 2000 article about PCBs and Aniston. In 1975, the lab submitted its findings from a study using rats. An early draft said that in some cases, PCBs had caused tumors. George Levinskis, a Monsanto manager, wrote to the lab's director, May we request that the report be amended to say, Does not appear to be carcinogenic. The final report dropped all references to tumors. Yes, that was George in 1975 <laughs> basically saying that, yeah, we know that in some cases it caused tumors, but let's just say instead that it doesn't appear to be carcinogenic, <laughs> which is about as unethical of a move you could possibly make. Now here's George 10 years later in 1985, apparently not learning from his mistakes <laughs> with PCBs. Here's the memo he wrote regarding Dr. Marvin Kushner coming in to review the mouse kidney slides. Senior management at EPA is reviewing a proposal to classify glyphosate as a Class C possible human carcinogen because of kidney adenomas in male mice. Dr. Marvin Kushner will review kidney sections and present his evaluation of them to the EPA in an effort to persuade the agency that the observed tumors are not related to glyphosate. <laughs> let, let me read that part again. In an effort to persuade the agency that the observed tumors are not related to glyphosate. And there goes objectivity right out the window. Obviously, Dr. Kushner wasn't going in to objectively review the kidney sections. He was clearly going into his review with the intention of persuading the EPA that the tumors in the higher dose group were not related to glyphosate. And the best way to do that was to convince everyone that the control mouse in question did indeed have a tumor that upended the rest of the data. If only Arnold Schwarzenegger had been there. It's not a tumor. Understand, a tumor in one of those control mice would have essentially dropped the hammer on the study, making its results look much less conclusive in regards to these specific tumors. And Monsanto just went all in on convincing the EPA of glyphosate safety. They commissioned their own experts to refute the findings of the study, and I put that main document up on the website so you can read it for yourself, which I strongly encourage you to do. Those commissioned experts, which I would guess means paid experts, all went on to make arguments based on the assumption that Dr. Kushner's it is a tumor finding was fact, which the top two authorities in this matter, the EPA and Biodynamics, both disagreed with. Monsanto's experts also spent a great deal of time cherry-picking data from control mice, including mice at other labs. You do not have to be a scientist to understand the concept of controls, and the relevance of controls always starts with the study at hand, as Jean Parker mentioned in her statement. It's certainly fair to go back and look at other very similar studies from the same lab, particularly for these kinds of studies, which we cover in GMO Truth number 7. But as you can see on the document here, Monsanto's people ventured into studies at two other labs and then used that data in their arguments as well, which it doesn't look like anyone gave much credence to at least. However, they did give credence to historical data from the same lab. And in everything Monsanto gave to the experts they had looking at the data independently, only seven historical control studies were presented with 815 total control mice within those seven studies. Out of those 815 mice, three had tumors. The glyphosate study they are trying to refute showed three tumors in just the high-dose group, 50 mice. Obviously, those numbers don't look so good for Monsanto's case, but instead of looking at the numbers like I just did, 
The hired experts instead declared that the renal adenoma is not a rare tumor in untreated mice of the same CD1 strain, and that on seven studies, renal adenomas have been observed in the control groups of two of these studies. So two out of seven studies had mice in the control group develop the same tumors, which means the majority of the studies, five out of seven, had zero control mice show any of the tumors. Now, here's something new. We didn't even catch this in our first pass. If you look at page four of this EPA document we have up on video, the data actually shows 14 studies, not seven, which is what we initially reported in GMO Truth number seven because I looked at the raw data set. I wasn't looking at Monsanto's manipulated numbers. I was actually wrong myself here as one of those studies was clearly irrelevant because kidneys in that particular study were never examined. So our numbers should have referenced 13 studies, not 14. Still, that leaves 13 studies with a total of 1,371 mice to compare, not seven studies with only 815 mice. So that's 556 more mice than Monsanto bothered to reference, and lo and behold, in all the studies strangely left out, zero control mice developed the rare tumor. That means three control mice out of 1,371, or two-tenths of 1%, ever developed a tumor that Monsanto tried to convince the EPA was not rare. And to me, it looked like at no point did the EPA even notice that the data was incomplete, that Monsanto was only focusing on seven studies instead of 13. They certainly didn't seem to say anything in the documents that Monsanto kept sending them that were from their panel of experts. Finally, when I looked at the last review document that Penny and Jean both looked at back in 1991, there's one paragraph. It's only on this one document that I'm showing you now. I've not seen it noted anywhere else where the EPA discusses the larger control data yet still comes to the same conclusion. And I don't even know where they grab their numbers from exactly, but it doesn't match up with the raw data I saw in the earlier document. Here they say there are 16 studies now, not 13. So there's, there's three more studies. And there were a total of 1,286 mice looked at, which is actually 85 mice fewer than I saw in the original document. So here's an easy conclusion you can draw. There are way too many discrepancies and inconsistencies with this mouse study. But let's just run with the EPA's 16 studies mentioned here. That still boosts the two studies out of seven stat, as Monsanto kept communicating to everyone, up to two studies out of 16. And then it takes the total up from three out of 815 mice, as Monsanto kept pushing, to three out of 1,286. And that's still just two-tenths of one percent. And yes, the word you're looking for right now is manipulation. The bottom line here is that at no point did the historical control data prove anything, yet Monsanto kept pushing it, obtaining letters from four different doctors who weren't given the accurate historical control numbers, which we know because they referenced the wrong numbers on their documents. And all four of those doctors spoke to the historical data as if it unequivocally proved their point on the mouse study. Last of all, Monsanto had a review done by a pathology working group, which starts on page 7 of this document here. Again, unbelievably, the first point they said they took into consideration for their arguments against the relevance of this study was historical control data. And even though they start out by saying there isn't much control data available for this mouse stock, they then go on to defend historical control data anyway, noting several laboratories, not just the one used for this study, which of course would by far be the most relevant. To make matters worse, they reference an Appendix B page for the historical control data they looked at, which conveniently was not included in the publicly available version of the document. 
So I can't even tell you exactly what they did look at, and they don't explicitly state it in their arguments. But the fact that they reference the historical controls first here may point to a lack of objectivity on their part, or it may just mean that they weren't given the full data set either, like the four doctors who wrote letters for this. Now the rest of what the pathology working group states, particularly in the fourth and final point they said they took into consideration, I am by no means qualified to comment on, but it is a different argument and a more in-depth take on why they feel the tumors were not compound related, one which I definitely encourage you to read. It's just four paragraphs, and if it's honest, I would expect this commentary to hold more weight than pretty much anything else we've seen, if the team of five put together for the working group was done so ethically instead of in the manner that we saw when Monsanto recruited Dr. Kushner, who was clearly coming into all this with an agenda. And sadly, because of that and Monsanto's overall behavior that I'll talk more about in a moment, it's really hard to feel comfortable about what happened with this study. Who would have guessed what a long life this crazy mouse study would have had related to glyphosate, and really, to GMOs as well, and they weren't even on the market yet. If you want to look for key moments, key pivot points in the GMO controversy, here we were 32 years ago at a testing crossroads where an ethical company would have shared the EPA's concern and immediately commissioned a repeat of that mouse study. An ethical company would have been disturbed by the study's results, listened to the EPA, and they would have wanted clear answers for themselves to make sure they weren't putting something harmful out into the world. Or in Monsanto's case, putting something harmful out into the world again. But in the reality we've been given, our GMO pioneer was Monsanto. And their actions, once again, were ethically irresponsible to say the least. As for the EPA's part, get the mouse study redone properly and look out for America's health instead of worrying about Monsanto's push for glyphosate's classification. Glyphosate was already out in the world at that point. Your job was to figure out if it should stay there. So we know Monsanto went all in on convincing EPA that this study basically showed nothing. They commissioned their own experts on the side to refute the findings, and guess what? That type of behavior should be given very little weight from any company, and it should be given zero weight when you're talking about a company that continually skirts ethics in favor of its own bottom line, especially when the end results of its previous ethical indiscretions were PCBs and the worst Agent Orange ever created. If glyphosate does indeed turn out to be carcinogenic, we will look back on that mouse study and the EPA's handling of the study's data as the canary in the coal mine that never ever should have been ignored. Alright, hang in there. That was only reason number one. We have two left. Okay, reason number two. Reason number two that we don't see how in good faith the EPA could have possibly given glyphosate the Class E designation that they did is that there are serious concerns as to whether or not the final rat study was properly evaluated. This is brand new info and I don't know how much of it has even been noticed before by anyone or if I'm in the twilight zone here literally just discovering this stuff myself, but it seems absolutely impossible that no one would have caught some of this over the course of 26 years. Regardless, here we go, let's dive down this rabbit hole together one last time. Both people I spoke with at the EPA mentioned the fact that this crucial review in 1991 went off a summary document. Here's how Gene Parker specifically addressed it. I could speculate that the person presenting a summary of the data at the meeting might have done so in such a way as to influence attendees by looking at each finding separately and discarding it, rather than eventually summarizing the overall database by looking at the weight of the evidence. Each peer review group member, however, should have reviewed and assessed the data for himself beforehand. Now, of course, that last sentence is key. We all hope that they did indeed review everything beforehand, 
and that everything matched up between the review documents and the actual data itself. While there are three key documents related to the RAT study and the final EPA peer review, the first one is the 30-page expanded summary of the second RAT study itself, which it looks like was distributed to everyone involved in the review about a month prior to that final June 1991 meeting. So that means all 19 people involved were supposed to look at this document as the crucial point of reference in deciding whether or not glyphosate would earn the all-important Group E designation. Now remember, the big concern coming off the controversial mouse study revolved around kidney tumors. Kidneys. Regardless of anything else that could come out of this second rat study, I mean obviously you're looking at everything, and in the last rat study in particular they had concerns about tumors in the testes. But one thing that had to be on everyone's mind was whether or not the rats developed any kidney problems. And that's especially true when you add in the three-generation rat study completed back in 1981, which I've got up on screen now, where there was a high incidence of focal tubular dilation in the kidneys of the male offspring. So you had mouse study, kidney problems, and then rat study, kidney problems. In other words, of all the things screaming at the EPA to follow up on regarding glyphosate, I would think looking at the kidney data was most certainly screaming the loudest. It definitely had to at least be near the top of the list. On screen right now is that 30-page summary document. It is the most detailed publicly available information on the second rat study. And here's the kicker. Nowhere within these 30 pages is any data given whatsoever on the rat kidneys. None. No data tables showing how one, none, ten, whatever number of rats had any kidney issues of any kind. The only mention of kidneys at all is in one female rat that had all kinds of problems and they essentially eliminated from the study because the poor thing was such a mess. And that is it. Look, if the kidney data was sterling, shining, perfect, no tumors, nothing, across the board, for every single rat in the study, then show that in the summary document. Scream it from the rooftops. Congratulations, it looks like rat kidneys are going to be fine after all. But don't show the data? When everyone was concerned about kidneys, you don't even put that summary data on this pivotal document? And none of the 19 people involved in this review asked for that data to be added? Are you kidding me? Show the numbers. As if there wasn't already concern about mon shenanigans going on with these studies, now all of a sudden we don't even need to talk about the kidney results? I don't even know what to say about that other than that I'll try to reach out to Gene and Penny at some point for their takes on this and some of the other new findings here, and I will comment on all that in a future podcast if I want to hear back from them. In the meantime, let's move on to what's on screen right now, which is one of the other important data areas in the second rat study. It's what Jean mentioned in her statement, and it's the same area Penny and I discussed in detail during our interview, the two pages showing thyroid C-cell tumor rates in males and then females. It's also the section that I thought from our research would have prevented a Group E designation, and again, that's as a layman, not your EPA scientist. So this is where Penny and I discussed trend tests and pairwise comparisons, and Jean summed it up nicely in a couple spots in her statement like this, which I'm, I'm merging together here a little bit for summary's sake, but I'm not taking anything out of context. Jean said, Increased incidences of tumors were also observed in rats exposed to glyphosate. For example, statistically significant increases in islet cell tumors were observed in both sexes of rats. And there are also thyroid C-cell tumors in rats and hepatocellular adenomas. Although these were adenomas, they were significant. Here I must comment that the statistical test applied could result in different conclusions regarding statistical significance, depending upon the test used and on the controls used. The trend test would give different results from pairwise comparisons, for example. As Jean mentioned, for the male thyroid C-cell tumor rates, there was a 4% adenoma or carcinoma tumor rate found in the control group, 
but there were 11%, 14%, and 14% found in the, in the dosage groups. Then in the females, there was also the 4% adenoma or carcinoma tumor rate found in the control group, but there were 3%, 12%, and 11% found in the dosage groups. So for both males and females, the two higher dose groups had double-digit percentage tumor rates, and the control groups were only at 4%. From Gene's standpoint, there was a concern, and from Penny's take and the EPA's overall assessment, Everything presented, at least in this final review, could be written off as statistically insignificant. Where is the truth here? I wish I could tell you. Okay, let's get to the final reason why we absolutely cannot fathom how a Group E classification was granted to glyphosate here. And it's sadly that, once again, we're confronted with Monsanto trying to be the poster child for the word unscrupulous. Let's just do a quick review of some of the seriously questionable actions that took place starting in the mid-1980s and leading up to the 1991 glyphosate review. Number one, they repeatedly submitted irrelevant control data, including the same data twice at different times to different people within the EPA, all in an effort to dismiss potentially damning data in the studies. We talk about all that in detail in GMO Truth number seven. Number two, they hired Dr. Kushner to come in with clear intention of convincing the EPA to dismiss the mouse study that was done before he even reviewed any data whatsoever. Objectivity, not here. Number three, they took Kushner's take on a tumor in a control mouse and just rammed it through the EPA from every direction possible until apparently everyone just believed it, despite the fact that EPA staff and the staff at Biodynamics Lab both disagreed with Kushner's assessment, and that assertion had a dramatic effect on how the mouse study was ultimately interpreted. And last of all, they spent years fighting back at the EPA on redoing the mouse study instead of simply redoing it. It was a two-year study, folks. If they just went ahead and redid it from the start instead of trying to manipulate and massage data in their favor, the new mouse study would have been done before the new rat study even, and it probably would have made the 1991 review process a whole lot easier on everyone. So the bottom line here is that if you're the EPA... There has got to be an extra level of scrutiny put in place when a company acts like Monsanto did. They just had PCBs banned in the decade prior. They had dioxin from Agent Orange. And here with glyphosate, Monsanto continued to act unscrupulously with all the pushback and bullying they did towards the EPA. At no point should that have been tolerated. When a company's already established a willingness to manipulate and deceive in an effort to get what they want, to me, that means extra safeguards must be put in place to protect the public health from any repeat disasters of PCB proportions. It most certainly does not mean less is done, and in this case, where the mouse study absolutely reeks of manipulation, what instead took place sure as hell looks like the opposite of putting in extra safeguards. And finally, the second rat study was supposed to clear everything up after a mouse study that flagged the Group C classification. When instead of doing that, we saw non-concurs within the EPA, people refusing to sign off, people expressing concerns over how data is being interpreted. When all that's happening, how can you look at this and grant the Group E classification? So for the GMO truth, I don't see how anyone can objectively look at the glyphosate approval process in the 80s and early 90s and say with honesty and conviction that anything better than a Group D should have been granted at that time. I can understand why a Group C would have been considered a bit much with the circus they were stuck dealing with back then. And I can understand the EPA saying, hey, we're concerned, we need concrete proof before we can move this out of a Group D designation in either direction. But giving Monsanto's glyphosate an E designation just looks flat out negligent. I completely agree with Gene Parker on that. I don't care if you're adamantly pro-GMO, just look at all the evidence here and tell me that you're comfortable with Group E. 
All right, we are done, at least with 1991. Let's go back to the future here. And speaking of the future, what's happening in the real world with glyphosate and potential cancer links raises the ultra-important question, what about formulations? Of course, it's important to test a new active ingredient like glyphosate by itself, but what kind of precautions are taken for the formulas that glyphosate is put into? Remember, Roundup isn't just a bottle filled with glyphosate and water. I expect our glyphosate research to head down that path next because I'm extremely concerned about formulations, and particularly how much testing actually takes place there because from what I saw during preliminary research, the answer is not much. And before we wrap up today, I want to look at some new evidence that unfortunately backs that concern. These are part of the disturbing revelations from internal Monsanto documents that were unearthed as part of the Roundup trial in San Francisco I mentioned before. They not only raise questions about formulations and the lack of testing there, but also about endocrine disruption from Roundup. Speaking to that last part specifically, here's an excerpt from one of the documents, this one from spring 2002 between Monsanto employees William Haydens and Donna Farmer. Let you and I sit down with all the new free studies tomorrow. I want to understand what they all say and see if there is anything more we should be doing besides the usual pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. That's great stuff, isn't it? I'm glad the usual at Monsanto is just telling people to pay no attention to anyone who disagrees with them. Then two sentences later, there's this follow-up gem. Even though no testing requirements have been implemented for several years now, this damn endocrine crap just doesn't go away, does it? And last of all, there's this disturbing quote from a Donna Farmer email in late 2003. Donna was the toxicologist responsible for glyphosate and glyphosate products. Here's the key excerpt. The terms glyphosate and Roundup cannot be used interchangeably, nor can you use Roundup for all glyphosate-based herbicides anymore. For example, you cannot say that Roundup is not a carcinogen. We have not done the necessary testing on the formulation to make that statement. The testing on the formulations are not anywhere near the level of the active ingredient. We can make that statement about glyphosate and can infer that there is no reason to believe that Roundup will cause cancer. And I'm sure that inference brought comfort to millions. Thank you, Donna and Monsanto. So to wrap up today, regardless of what happened in 1991 and the years leading up to it, what we have in our hands right now is another Monsanto chemical that's being used all over the planet. We also have multiple regulatory agencies around the globe telling us glyphosate is not likely to be carcinogenic with only IARC, the International Agency for Research on Cancer, chiming in to call it a probable carcinogen to humans at this point. And then we've got hundreds of Roundup lawsuits piling up with the big trial going on in San Francisco. It's a lot. And getting full clarity and concurrence on glyphosate is proving to be quite the difficult long-term effort for anyone. Now, I know what we've talked about in these two podcasts here is the, is the first big walk-mile project bombshell stemming from our work on the GMO controversy. But while I'm finishing off GMO truth number 13 that's coming up next, I need all of you to get ready for what's ahead because this EPA situation from 20 to 30 years ago pales in comparison. It is time to focus on what the GMO controversy really hinges on, and it hinges on what we always talk about here at Walk a Mile. What effect is this having on people in the real world? Not in corporate boardrooms or in government meetings, not in laboratories with mice and rats, and certainly not in all these documents that keep screaming at us with conflicting facts and figures as they have for over 30 years now on glyphosate. All that we've talked about here today has already come to pass. GMOs are out there. Glyphosate is out there. And after a year here at Walk Mile in which we spent a ton of time focused on government action with GMO labeling, for us, 
The rest of 2017 and into 2018 will be about shifting focus to the people affected by all that's transpired in these past two decades. That's how we move forward. And as you're going to see on our next podcast, which to me is easily the most important work we've done to date, the real answers we need to turn the tide are now right in front of us. You know, I said from the start that we just needed to ask the right questions. And believe me, when you see GMO truth number 13, you'll know exactly what I mean. Sorry for hyping that, but uh, it will live up to the hype. And, and thanks so much for hanging in there through these, this two-podcast marathon. We will continue to actively follow the glyphosate court case in San Francisco. And we'll be back at some point in the future as well to further our investigation on glyphosate and glyphosate-based herbicides. But for now, get ready for what's next. Because here's the thing. In GMO Truth Number 13, we start down the clearest path to date for how you can help resolve the GMO controversy yourself. Thanks for listening, everybody. Keep searching for the GMO truth. I will, of course, do the same. And we'll be back as soon as we can with the next episode. Please, please tell me now. Is there something I should know? You've been listening to the Walk a Mile Project's GMO Truth Podcast. To stay up to date on new podcasts or learn more and join in on our GMO investigation and upcoming feature film, head over to walkamileproject.com and sign up for free anytime, 24-7. And that is how we discover the truth and change the world together. Dance when you walk through that door.